This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for another episode of The Full Ratchet. Today, we talk the long-awaited topic of the limited partner with Lyndall Ekman of Foundry Group Next. Of course, Lyndall was recommended by Sean Moran and John Buttrick on our episode where we discussed the cap table. He is one of the foremost thinkers in the LP community, and he's just a really kind, generous, and down-to-earth guy that provides a ton of insight on what it means to be a limited partner and to invest in venture capital funds. In part one of the interview, we discuss his background and path to becoming an LP, his experience at Foundry Group Next and why he made the decision to move there. Lindell gives us a simple definition of the limited partner. He talks about the most common types of limited partners and the key players in the industry. He points out some of the strategic differences between these different types of institutional LPs, whether it be family offices, endowments, pension funds, or other forms of LPs. We talk a lot about assets under management and how portfolio structure works within a limited partner, and if they allocate a fixed percentage to venture capital or not. We also talk about if they have dedicated personnel at the LP for the asset class of venture capital. We then transition to talk about whether venture capitalists compete against each other for allocation at an LP, or whether it's typically venture capital competing against other asset classes for allocation. We discuss the weaknesses of setting an asset allocation target. And we wrap up by talking about how Lindell selects VC fund managers for investment. And he sets out the six main factors that he's looking for when he's evaluating VC fund managers. All that and more in part one of the interview with Lyndall Ekman of Foundry Group Next. Here's the interview on The Limited Partner. Today, we welcome Managing Director of Foundry Group Next, Lyndall Ekman. Lyndall is a nationally recognized leader in the limited partner community, having successfully managed the private investment program for the $35 billion pool of capital at the University of Texas Investment Management Company, Yatimco. He spent over a decade there where he was responsible for overseeing a portfolio of private equity fund managers, which represented approximately 25% of the endowment assets spread across mandates, including venture, growth, buyout, and credit investments in developed and emerging markets. Many folks who talk about LPs are quick to mention Lindell, and we're very lucky to have him join us today. Lindell, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate that. I'm glad to be here. And I know you've uh, you've got to say a little disclaimer here that this is not any sort of financial advice. So do you want to get that out of the way? We should do that. The uh, the SEC has had us register as a 
advisor. And so because of that, we want to clearly say that we are not fundraising today. And uh, per my compliance person's language, this discussion is solely for informational purposes and not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. There, I said it, we're covered. We're not raising money. We're not looking for investors. Okay, very good. Very clear. So, uh, Lyndall, can we start off with uh, sort of your background and your your path to uh, becoming a limited partner? Sure. Well, I mean, as you said in the intro, uh, and thanks for that, I come from a more diverse background where I looked at all private uh, asset classes and I was able, uh, with this last jump, to join some great partners and focus in on venture capital. Uh, for me, having been at Utimco for a decade, uh, I saw a lot of ways to make money, and I saw a lot of fun and interesting ways to invest uh, around the world, really. But for me, the most fun, the most interesting, and oh, by the way, the highest returns came through venture capital. And it was really, I think, a function of my relative youth when I took over the portfolio and also just my natural interest growing up with an Apple II uh, computer and playing in chat rooms uh, that really led me, you know, building a website with true HTML back in the early 90s that led me back to this area of investment and got me excited about it. Uh, my best uh, networks were in venture. And for me to be able to make the jump to focus solely on venture uh, has been a real luxury. And uh, in the first year, it's been a lot of fun. Great. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at Foundry Group and uh, what you're focused on with Foundry Group next? Sure thing. Uh, there's a running joke in the partnership that, uh, that I'm the new guy and I may forever be the new guy uh, <laughs> with, with much hazing involved. Um, Seth, Seth Levine was the new guy. Uh, until I came along. And, uh, and so he's glad to have me. Um, but, you know, when I looked at, at my career opportunities and all the different things that I could do with my time, thinking about the strategy that we ended up focusing on at Foundry Group Next, it was that I questioned whether LP co-investment made sense, uh, depending on who you were, especially, or whether a standalone fund of funds made sense. Uh, and then when I started having these conversations, you know, my partners were some of the best investors around, had proven themselves in early and in growth investing you know, through their own funds. They'd also personally invested in funds with really great success. And it came to all of us in conversations, mostly friendly to start with, of giving me advice on, on what to do next, that we could combine those things. And so that's what we did. We raised a fund that does a couple of different things. We think it's a differentiated model because we lead with direct investments uh, using my partners, Brad, Jason, Seth, and Ryan as the leads, participate on boards, put together proactive rounds with companies. That's not that different and that we have a fund to do that. Our fund invests both in Foundry Group early stage companies, so like an opportunity fund that many others might have, but 25% of our fund is also reserved to invest in companies coming out of the last 25% of our fund, which is a fund of funds model. There, we're investing in a sleeve of early stage managers that will deliver investment opportunities similar to the co-investment model, but with us leading them and being a lead investor in those. We felt like that was a differentiated model. Uh, happily, LPs and entrepreneurs have agreed. So we raised the fund relatively quickly. And we're really 
happy to be able to give back to the ecosystem across the stages. Uh, you know, in the early stage, you know, with the seed managers and the micro VC managers, the pre-seed managers in the early stage with our own founder group, early stage fund and investing in other funds that we like to co-invest with. And now with the, in the growth stage with this vehicle that gives us another mandate to participate. So what are some of the ways that you, you are differentiated at Foundry? How are you getting a leg up on, on others or how are you getting sort of a better advantage with this new model? You know, I, I would uh, I would say exactly what we're looking for in funds, and I think that's uh, you know that's the area of, of probably of most interest for listeners here is how do LPs think about funds? For us, we focused in on early stage, and, and that means uh, seed or pre-seed or really Series A uh, could be could have some exposure there. We want to support new and, and emerging managers. We also want to support our friends that we're already close with and, and draw them closer into our network, and that's. Generally going to be sub $100 million funds. It's technology focused. It's North America. You know, I've invested across the world. Uh, I I would recognize there are a couple of great opportunities in in Europe, in particular in Berlin and London, that are interesting to us. We invested in China. It was great. Uh, You know, from now my seat in Boulder, not Texas anymore, uh, it's difficult to invest in some of those foreign markets. So we're focused on North America to begin with. We like the small funds where we can be helpful to them. And, and I think differentiated in a couple of ways. I bring an institutional LP perspective that many of these small funds may not already have to start with. Uh, but I also bring the experience of, of my partners, you know, in an experienced GP perspective. And we hope to really help our fund investments grow their own business in a sense, thinking of investing in them and helping them grow their own business, whether it's thinking about portfolio strategy it's, or it's a tactical situation with a portfolio company, or it's, it's fundraising, or it's practicing for your annual meeting. We feel like we can bring some advice and some experience to them. And hopefully it's, they, they see that as helpful and, and differentiated in sort of the fund investment model. The second piece of the, of the pie is, is the direct investments and where we have that friendly fund relationship, where we have uh, the perspective of years of investing experience from the direct side, if I'm doing my job correctly, I'm working with the underlying GPs to find those companies for us to participate in earlier. And in fact, before other growth investors might see it and before other VCs might be aware of it, because we have been an investor in their funds. Great. So how did the transition from Texas to Colorado go? I know uh I know the culture in Colorado is pretty unique and um it is in Texas as well. Well, um I would say I'm a proud Texan, which is something you don't say uh very loudly in Colorado. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we um I I've had family up here in Boulder for, you know, since the 1970s. And so I've been coming up here to Boulder. And I would argue that Austin and Boulder have a more similar culture than any other two cities in Texas and Colorado. So relatively easy transition uh, so far. And uh, glad to have the family up here and getting settled with me. Awesome. Well, uh, as you know, clearly today we're talking about the limited partner or the LP. And we have discussed LPs in bits and pieces many times before on the program here. But for those listening to the program for the first time, uh, can you start off with a simple definition of limited partner? Well, I, I think there's there's probably a legal definition. And, and given that I'm not an attorney, I, I won't provide that one. 
Uh, although I'll, I'll try and simplify it a little bit to represent that it's not just in the venture industry or the private equity industry or real estate. This is a, a model that's been around well, since before I was born, uh, much longer than I've been alive. Uh, it's when an, a limited partner is it's a capital provider that invests uh, usually with other capital providers. It's in a pooled vehicle. So several different people invest together in a vehicle that is actively managed by the general partner. In this case, we're talking about venture capital and venture capitalist firms. There's a certain set of terms and agreements. We call it the limited partnership agreement or the LPA, where the limited partners don't have active participation, but they do limit their capital at risk to the invested or the committed amount. Like I said, the industry evolved a lot over time. But the limited nature gives the GP discretion, and in return, the LP receives limited liability. And that's that's the model that much of the industry has settled on. There are often people trying to come up with new models and uh, with new structures. And I've always listened attentively, but I'd say 98, 99% of the industry follows that limited partner model. Got it. So most people think of LPs in sort of two groups. We think of the the institutional LPs like the endowments and the pension funds that you have a lot of experience with. And then we think about sort of retail LPs. So those individuals uh, of high net worth that are making commitments to venture funds. Can you talk about some of the the large strategic differences between some of these groups of, of LPs? Well, you know, I mean, I'd say capital can come from anywhere. I mean, the most common is actually, you know, individuals or family offices. I think, you know, institutions are recognized because of their their size. Uh, they can write a big check. Generally, they they have a long-term nature, depending on which type of capital it might be. There's a, usually a, a commitment to the asset class, and that's usually has a staff. Sometimes it may not be a big enough staff, but it's a staff that has a, a, a charge to invest in the asset class um, you know, I think I think prized for you know consistency and their long term nature. Endowments and foundations get a lot of press because an endowment or a foundation often have a, a time horizon in, in perpetuity. So you know they're investing; they're playing the really really long game. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, pensions often will have a longer term horizon. You got public pensions, which we hear a lot about in the news today increasingly private pensions are going away, but they're still large sources of capital, you know, for the industry. You've got insurance companies and then you have collective vehicles such as OCIOs, which is an outsourced CIO institution that effectively likes acts like an outsourced endowment staff. And you might have an OCIO that gathers up some smaller institutional monies and, and, and delivers the benefits of scale and the cost savings of scale by having one staff. Uh, those have been something that have really grown since I came in the industry. Then, of course, you have fund of funds, and fund of funds. I would say they're 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 looked down upon um, historically, largely due to capital uncertainty and, frankly, underperformance. And you know, in a lot of cases, but I will tell you that that I don't think they should be because they are the ones most committed to your asset class as a GP. They're the ones that are most aligned, and usually. They attract people that have the most experience because they have a different compensation structure than many of the public entities that I just named. It almost sounds like some of these institutional LPs are well positioned for an asset class like like venture because the horizons are are in perpetuity for a lot of these funds and 
ventures traditionally very long time horizons with low liquidity. Um, is that why you find you may find uh, a higher percentage of allocation of portfolios in these institutional investors toward private equity and toward venture than you'll find elsewhere? Well, you know, there's there's actually a lot of downside uh, that comes with with some of these these same ideas. So they're praised for size and consistency or time horizon or dedicated staff. But, you know, there, there are challenges, too. There are gatekeepers, which I'm sure you've experienced, um, you know, would be they consultants or be they uh, service providers. There are slow decisions. Generally, there's a there's a longer process and maybe multiple levels of process. I would say that the incentives are generally wrong for staff at some of these places and that they end up attracting a, a very risk averse type of person when maybe they would be better off taking more risk. So they do come with challenges. Yes, they write big dollars, but actually, if you look at a percentage of their portfolio, and this is totally generalizing, but it's very low. Whereas you might find an individual who's willing to take more risk, right or wrong, and you'll or a family office that's willing to take more risk and have a higher percentage of their assets, you know, over their whole balance sheet in venture or a perceived riskier asset class like venture. Yeah. Speaking of that, what what would one expect when they look at the the portfolio breakdown? of percentages to different asset classes, including venture of a, a big pension fund, for instance? Well, in particular, I, I'm you know, a big pension fund. I'm going to say uh, a public entity at this point is what we're describing because the privates, they move around a little bit more. You know, the public entities, there are a lot of public pensions that have zero allocation yep. to venture. Yep. Uh, it's just too small. It is not something that they know how to do. It is perceived as very risky, and you know, they just they just can't do it. There are groups that have uh, you know one to two percent uh, in venture. Many of these larger public institutions are forced to use some sort of collective investment vehicle, a fund of funds, or another um, separate consulting group or staff group to help them invest in venture because they just don't have the resources to do that. Mm-hmm. And and what about the endowment side? Is it is it pretty similar the uh, portfolio breakdown, or is it is it different for uh, for the large endowments? You know, for the very largest endowments like Utimco, it, 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 I mean that's part of the reason I left Utimco is they had a challenge of scale. Uh, it's very difficult um, when you're trying to deploy uh, twenty five or fifty million dollar checks into twenty five or fifty million dollar funds. Turns out nobody wants that much much customer concentration. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'd say to generalize, well, for example, at Utimco, uh, we had over a billion of NAV uh, in the ground. You know, it, it looked like, uh, t- depending on how you counted the total assets at Utimco, somewhere around 4 or 5% of the investable assets that could invest in a long-term entity like that. That's pretty high. Uh, and I'm proud of what Utimco did and how they set the asset allocation and, and pretty proud of how we executed when I was there. Uh, Utimco has been a good partner to venture. We'll continue doing that. They did suffer from from the challenge of scale and being public. So having four or five percent of a large amount of money is 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 meaningful to the industry. I would say that foundations uh, or smaller endowments are more apt to have you know five to ten percent of their assets in venture and have been the real supporters of the asset class over the years. So in a large endowment like that, will there be dedicated personnel that focus on venture capital and or private equity? Or 
do the professional folks at the endowment, do they have focus that spans across asset classes? Well, I'll use my own uh, experience by example and say that I think endowments are generally better staffed than most of the other LPs, uh, institutions that we, we brought up. However, my old portfolio was about $5 billion of NAV, and there were five of us managing, so sort of a, a billion, a billion per, and that wow. makes it difficult because we're covering, you know, the world and different types of private capital structures, and you know, in some ways, you're just a flyby investor. I used to say, and it's probably still true, I spent way more time on venture than I should have when I was at Utimco, but I did it because I liked it. And there's a difference than when you're forced to do it. I, I think that a credit manager is a great way to make money, but it just was not interesting to me. And so I would spend less time on that and had, had someone great working for me that, that worked on that area of the, of the portfolio. Uh, at Utimco, I spent probably only about 25, 30% of my time on venture. And then I also had another woman that worked with me that spent a, a similar amount of her time on venture. So together we were not quite half or around about half of a full-time employee in FDE. Okay. And Lindell, I wanted to get your perspective on this sort of dynamic between asset classes competing against each other for allocation within an institutional investor versus within a specific asset class like venture capital, you know, different fund managers competing against each other for allocation of that amount that's been previously allocated to venture capital. Do you find that often the dynamic is a competition between asset classes, or do you find that the institution will earmark a certain amount for these different asset classes, and then the fund managers within those asset classes are, are competing for those dollars? Oh, I think there are elements of both there. You know, I wish it were cleaner than that. But I, I think of any private structure as a structure not representative of the underlying exposure. So I, I think of venture as just a type of equity exposure in a particular structure. And you can think of that as different than credit, as different than investment-grade assets, or different than hard assets like real estate and natural resources. Um, they, there's sort of all different types of risk and return profiles. But venture's really, in my mind, venture's really competing with other equity exposure to justify its place in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. It, it is the case that many institutions uh, will set a an asset allocation target. Um that's done both to help the staff build exposure. So yes, it does allocate a certain amount of money. And we can talk about why that doesn't work well in a minute, but it does allocate a certain percentage usually of capital against that. But I also, you know, I also think that it's a challenge for staff when you think about it makes investors more pro-cyclical than they otherwise would be because of the denominator effect. So think of it as equity exposure. Think of it as competing and earning its place. Uh, it does have a different, longer lockup. And uh, because of that illiquidity, uh, we believe it should earn a higher premium to more traditional types of equity exposure or more liquid types of equity exposure. And that's who it's really competing with and earning its place. I would say it's also high touch. One of the biggest challenges for institutional LPs is bandwidth, not capital. 
And you know, when you think about your return on time investor, your ROTI, is how do you justify the time investment with limited staff against the smaller opportunity set? Well, only if it provides a higher return profile would you do that. And then you mentioned some of the weaknesses of setting an, an asset allocation target. What would what are some of those? I mean, I think the biggest is the pro-cyclical nature of it. Got it. Uh, you know, I think the I think the 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 board and the consultants and staff and you know everybody are well intentioned, but my goodness, it makes you pro-cyclical in your expansion or, or, or subtraction because it's based on the denominator, which is the total endowment which mostly grows or shrinks based on the equity exposure. So you're doing what everybody else is doing all at the same time. And that, that ends up being a, a real negative in my mind. LPs ought to you know, pick an exposure level and amount of capital they're comfortable with a range. And as long as, so long as they're in that range, they should have a steady diet of investing in GPs every year. And it, I assume that that's the strategy you put in place at Utimco as well? It largely is. I mean, we, we weren't immune to the market movements, you know, in, <laughs> in 2009, that was an eye opener uh, for sure. But, you know, I think we were largely able to support our managers, you know, when the, when the time came. I mean, the other reason they do percentage exposure is so they can benchmark staff, right? So they, it, it creates a, a portfolio that allows them to benchmark staff against, you know, on a year by year basis with, a, with certain benchmarks. Uh, I think the the other challenge with cyclicality with regards to venture is when you get a significant retraction in the market, how do you get the money out of venture to to adjust that target down? Right. You really, I mean, there's there are people that that do secondary buys, but it, that's not a good place. LPs don't do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, my friends in the secondary world would would kill me for that, but I I, I don't know of a case where the LP wins. Now there are reasons to do it, but I don't do that. Yeah, you know, the only thing they can do is stop making new commitments. That that really is the only lever you have as an LP is whether you make new commitments. And that might mean that you miss on your favorite group because they happen to be fundraising at that point in time. And that is a real uh, sad thing for an organization, say Utemco, that's public, that's really fighting to, you know, to get their place at the table, especially when they want to have uh, you know, a large seat or a large allocation of a smaller fund. Sure. People talk about some of the best startups being built in recessions, and, and I bet some of the best, most bulletproof funds were also built in uh, down markets. Well, there's clear cyclicality of returns uh, when you look at vintages and uh, largely correlated to fundraising uh, and too much fundraising and too many uh, people just getting loose with capital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, GPs get graded by LPs all the time on their pace you know, and how and how quickly they deploy the capital, and we want to see them build build time diversity, uh, you know, in their own investment efforts, and have a little discipline around it themselves. <laughs> Unfortunately, LPs are kind of the worst of that bunch because, and I'll put myself in that court. You know, we're always chasing and responding to the market because you only have that one lever. So we always looked for GPs that had some discipline about deployment. Got it. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. 
Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So I want to get into some of the fun stuff here. So you're an LP, and whether it be at Utimco or at FG Next, you have to assess VC fund managers and make choices about who you want to invest in. What are some of the key items that are factoring into your decision on whether to invest in a fund manager? Yeah, I think it's it's worth noting, this is tangentially um, directed at that question. It's it's worth noting that almost all institutional LPs or even fund of funds have an existing portfolio, you know, and so you're always in competition or being graded against that existing portfolio. And it, use the analogy of a, you know, a, um, an athletic team, uh, a pro sports team where, you know, the, the salary cap is the limit of the amount of capital you can deploy each year based on your, on your percentage allocation we just talked about. And you're constantly trying to upgrade that that roster. So hmm. when a GP goes out to fundraise, the first place that they're the person they're you know competing against is the the person that's already in the portfolio. Uh, and so that's that's important to think about when you're when you're comparing yourself. We were public at Utemco, and people can request the you know the portfolio, and we would actually have people come in. And in some ways, it was pretty smart, but other ways, it was annoying. We'd have people come in and, and have pulled our portfolio and say, oh, I'm better than that guy, and I'm better than that one, and that one, and that one, and look what we did, and I've compared our returns. And it was always a little apples and oranges, but certainly, I have to give them credit for being aware that that was the competition they're in. To, to directly answer your question, though, what are we looking for? And in, in our case, we have a, a list of sort of six broad categories. It's It's... I call it sourcing advantage. So, you know, what's their edge? And, you know, each of these have sort of small bullet points. And I've actually thought about putting my, my scorecard online. I probably should, but then everybody would use it against me. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the sourcing advantage. Um, one thing that, that I think we put a lot more emphasis on is internal team dynamics and how that team works together and how they, how the decisions get made and the alignment and body language around each other and, how does that work? The third thing, and, and probably in order of, of importance for me, is the strategy and the portfolio construction. You know, does the fund size reflect what their strategy is? And does the you know does 
do they have a real sense for exactly how they want to build a portfolio? And will they hold themselves accountable to that? Again, getting to, to enforcing discipline on yourself. It's not that you can't evolve over time. It's that you do it in a way that, that, that recognizes where you've been and what you said you were going to do. I think the fourth thing, and, and some people put this first on their list, is performance. You know, ha- have they had multiple successful exits? Um, you know, what? How do they? How do they do versus their peers? Are they on fund? You know, ten. Uh, you know, and 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 what's that performance been? Or you know, has cash really come back? You know, for us, we're not going to have the benefit uh, of that long performance record. One, just based on who we're investing. Two is we like to think that we can look at the return potential of an unrealized portfolio and that we want to look at kind of the loss ratio. Is there a, a reasonable loss ratio or a, the right distribution of returns? Is it is it one? Is it repeatable? What do they expect and how are they investing against that, you know, from a performance standpoint? The last two I'll go more quickly is, you know, what's how is their external relationship both um, – you know, with with their LPs and you know, with with other GPs, you know, what kind of partner are they? Um, will they do they overlap with Foundry? Do we know a little bit about what they're doing? Do we have a history there and know how they act inside a fund? And you know, do we have some perspective on how they act on a, a board of directors? Um, is there a likelihood that we'll do some some direct investments together? Uh, you know, what do they want us involved? We don't want to force our way into a relationship where they don't really want us. Um, so we're, we're, we really want to be both ways in that. And then the last thing is legal terms. And, you know, they're pretty standard at this point, but there are some things that are non-starters for us. Got it. And does the criteria or the way that you're assessing, assessing fund managers change if it's a first-time manager? I mean, clearly, you're not going to have the track record, but anything else? Right. I mean, I mean, the track record is one thing. Um, actually, you know, I don't think so. Yes, I do like to have people that have experience, both success and failure. I think you learn a lot from failure if you're a smart and humble person. But, you know, I think that you're lacking the, the track record, but you need to have a very cogent message and a very well thought out portfolio plan and, and frankly, how you're going to build your business, you know, whether you're going to build your business uh, be it through a podcast um, here or, <laughs> or through other other ways, you can create, you know, an edge. And do we find that edge compelling? Do entrepreneurs find that edge compelling? You need to have some evidence of that. Right, right. You know, back to your analogy with the baseball team and, and draft picks. I'd imagine that the, the size of the contract is also a critical factor, too, because, if you've got an existing roster of of fund managers that are all running fifty million dollar funds, you could find the hottest new first time fund manager in the Midwest. But if they're only raising a five million dollar fund, it's it's not really going to move the needle. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. You know, everybody's got a portfolio construction theory. Uh, I do too. And you know, we're going to do twelve core positions, and we're going to do a number of smaller pilot positions. And you know, for us. That holds me accountable. Uh, you know, we've closed eight fund investments this year, and you know that is it's it's foot on the gas. You know, as you start early, so time to slow that down a little bit, hold myself accountable to that time diversity and that portfolio construction we defined early. Very cool to have Lindell on the program here. Excellent segment in part one of the interview. 
In part two, we will discuss if Lindell thinks that LP investment strategy is influencing VC fund managers and if that tail is really wagging the dog. We will talk about some of the biggest challenges for the limited partner. We also discuss how LPs differentiate and attempt to get allocation with the best GPs. Lindell talks about his advice for investors and also first-time general partners that are raising a first fund. And we wrap up with Lindell's final thoughts on limited partners. Stay tuned for part two of the interview, which will be published tomorrow. Until then, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.